I'm unaccustomed to speaking like this with something in one hand. So forgive me if I come in and out like this while I'm talking. That just, you might have to put up with it. I'll try my best though. Well, I don't want to, no, no, it's okay, Carolyn. I feel like time's going to be an issue already, so I don't want to take any more. <clears throat> so from its opening verses, uh, Mark's gospel is focused on one single question. Who is Jesus? Now, granted, that might not sound like I'm starting out with the most brilliant of insights, uh, because hopefully you don't need a Bible college degree to know that all four of the Gospels are kind of concerned with who is Jesus. So what makes Mark special? Why bother pointing that out? Well, what makes Mark unique is the way, the particular way that he goes about answering this question. Perhaps the most direct and clear statement that Mark makes about Jesus' identity is actually found in the opening verse of the gospel. So if you have a Bible and you want to read along, Mark 1.1 reads, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Okay, so there you have it, right? Right off the top, the evangelist declares in no uncertain terms that the story we're about to read is about this man, Jesus, who was the long-awaited Messiah and who was also Son of God. That seems fairly clear, yes? Mark appears to not want to leave us guessing. He wants us to know right off the top from word one who this guy was or who this guy is, we might say, uh, because that's what makes his story worth reading, right? Or for Mark, that's what makes this a story worth telling. But here's the thing. In the very next verses, Mark then tells us that in order to understand Jesus' story, you have to go all the way back to the words of the prophet Isaiah. And then he quotes a couple of verses. And if you do your homework, if you go and read those verses in their original literary context, which is just a fancy way of saying in the books where they showed up in the first place, then you find that they don't actually have anything to do with the Messiah. They actually appear to associate Jesus with something or someone else, but that's a sermon for another Sunday. Uh, and then, if you read a bit further, before even the end of chapter 1, you're going to find Jesus ordering someone that he had just healed to not tell anybody about it. And then if you read a little bit further still, you're going to find Jesus telling his disciples right after one of them has just correctly identified him as Messiah to not tell anyone about it. Again, to keep it to themselves. And then if you look at some of the other stories, you're going to see Jesus doing things that no one, as far as we can tell, ever thought the Messiah would do. On the one hand, he's going around telling people their sins are forgiven and claiming that he's got authority over the Sabbath. And on the other hand, he's saying things like, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Or telling his disciples that when they at long last arrive in Jerusalem, he's going to be rejected and betrayed and killed. These are not Messiah things. 
So the point is that Mark begins the gospel by announcing that this is going to be the story of the Messiah and then repeatedly gives you reason after reason to question that statement. And I don't think that's an accident. This is Mark's way of inviting us to think about what these stories are telling us about Jesus' identity. This is Mark's way of inviting us, asking us to allow the things that Jesus said and did to speak for themselves. To let Jesus give us an answer to that question. To put the pieces together to fill in our answer to who this guy is. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah. But what kind of Messiah? is Jesus. What did he understand being Messiah to mean? How do Jesus's life and words and deeds force us to rethink some of our expectations? The beginning of the good news of Jesus the Messiah, but does that tell us everything about his identity? Is Jesus's significance entirely bound up with being this long-awaited Son of David, true king, chosen, anointed by God to deliver God's people? Or is there something more? Is there something more, something so amazing, so unexpected, so incredible, that it's not enough to just say, here he is. You actually have to experience it. And that's where the story that we're focused on today comes in. So I've got uh, the words of the story up on the screen there, but I only realized too late when Natalie told me that the words are tiny and they might be very hard to read. So uh, sorry about that. I wanted to also have uh, the, the piece of artwork up there for you to look at. So if you can follow along up there, great. You've got Bibles uh, in, in the seats in front of you there. So it's Mark chapter 4 right at the end of, of uh, Mark 4, verse 35 and following, if you want to follow along that way. And I'm really just going to be retelling a bunch of this story uh, anyway. So, um, you know, you can listen or read as you choose, as you prefer. The end of the day was approaching, and Jesus was tired. He had been teaching all day long, using parables to describe the kingdom of God, to everyone who was wanting to come and listen. The hours of speaking, of thinking, explaining, listening, responding, engaging. It's not running a marathon, but I'll tell you from experience that that kind of stuff, being on your feet, thinking, talking, it's draining, it's tiring. So as the daylight begins to fade and the crowd begins to disperse as People are heading off for their evening meal. Jesus tells the disciples that he wants to take the journey across the lake, almost certainly the body of water that we know of as the Sea of Galilee, so that the next day they can begin on the other side where Jesus can carry on with this ministry of word and deed that he has been engaged in. The disciples have no reason to object to this suggestion, and so they get on board the boat that Jesus already seems to have been on. If you go back to the beginning of Mark 4, Jesus was teaching from this boat by the shore. 
And Mark makes this somewhat odd statement that the disciples in verse 36 took Jesus along just as he was in the boat, which is a bit of a strange statement. Um, we'll come back to it. It's not exactly clear. I mean, are they going to take Jesus along in some other way as he wasn't? But anyway, you can kind of hold that in mind. Uh, and no sooner have they set sail than Jesus has found a sheltered corner out of the way in the stern. He's grabbed a cushion, wrapped his cloak around himself, and boom, lights out, right? The guy was clearly tired. And why not? Uh, it's going to be a long trip, uh, and it's not like he's in charge of the boat. A number of these disciples are fishermen by trade. They've spent their lives on boats like this, on this very body of water, right? It's likely that Peter, John, Andrew, James, these are guys that have done this trip dozens, hundreds of times before in their life. And Jesus, this son of a craftsman, if he tries to help out, he's just going to get in the way, right? So catch a few Zs, Zs, whatever it is, uh, have a nap, you'll be better for it. Let him get the rest. So the journey starts off well enough. But a couple of hours in, the weather starts to turn. And the conditions deteriorate quickly. Rain begins to fall. The wind starts to blow ever stronger. The water begins to get churned up into these great waves that are looming up out of the darkness, right? It's nighttime, remember, right? These are not, there's not a spotlight on the boat. It's, it's pitch black. Waves looming up out of the darkness, crashing over the sides of the ship. Ropes are straining to hold masts and sails in place. The timbers of the ship are creaking and groaning under the pressure. The disciples are yelling at each other about what needs to happen next. Wind, sea spray relentlessly pummel them as they are grabbing buckets, hanging onto ropes for dear life, bailing water out, just trying to stay afloat, right? Now, I don't myself know uh, what it's like to be on a boat in open water at night in the middle of a storm, uh, but I kind of think it's not the most enjoyable experience, fairly terrifying, especially, as I just mentioned, in the first century world where there's no such thing as GPS or radios to uh, radio in for help or gas-powered motors or inflatable dinghies to escape if the big boat goes down or electric light or anything like that. This is terrifying. Yes? Absolute chaos. And the disciples, even the seasoned fishermen among them, are afraid. Things are not good. And meanwhile, as all of this is going on, Jesus, in what is maybe the most unheralded of his miracles, is somehow still asleep through all of this. Realizing this, the disciples uh, kind of quietly approach Jesus, right? Gently nudge him, maybe shake his shoulder a bit. And when he slowly opens his eyes, they, they kind of say politely, Lord, Lord, sir, par pardon us. Uh, we, we don't wish to disturb you. I, we humbly apologize for interrupting your sleep. But as you can see, we're, we're in a bit of a tough spot. So uh, if you would possibly consider... I mean, only if it's not too much trouble, of course, right? We don't, we don't want to 
make you do anything you don't want to, but if, if you could maybe just hold this rope a bit or, or, or perhaps grab that bucket and, and maybe uh, just get rid of some of this water that's to our ankle. Oh, no, it's to our knees. Um, if it, but we don't want to disturb you, right? So if it pleaseth thee, uh, just, just help out a bit. No, right? The disciples yelling at the top of their lungs just to be heard above the storm call to Jesus, teacher, I'm not going to yell, I don't want to, shock anybody. But look at the, don't you care if we drown? Get up, grab a bucket, and bail like your life depends on it. Help out. And Jesus opens his eyes. He kind of, you know, takes in everything going on, this chaos by which he is surrounded. And he stands up, steadies himself, right? Because we got a ship all over the place, right? So steadies himself against the waves, shields his eyes from the rain and the sea spray and all of that business, looks out into the darkness and speaks. Two words, two commands. Quiet. Be still. And everything stops. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm, says verse 39. One moment, a cacophony of crashing waves, howling wind, and shouting men, and the next, the silence of a calm lake under a dark sky in the middle of the night. The stillness broken by the creaking of the ship still rocking, water dripping from everything, probably, and the disciples going, <sighs> right, catching their breath. Jesus wipes water from his face, turns around to look at his companions. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And here we reach this point of great significance in this story. It's a point I actually had overlooked for pretty much my whole life until someone pointed it out for me. In verse 41, Mark tells us that the disciples were terrified. But look at where they're terrified. This is not during the storm, it's after Jesus has stopped the storm. In fact, the literal translation of Mark's Greek, ephobethesan phobon megan, is they feared a great fear. And this is actually a fairly, uh, it's actually, it's a fairly common Hebrew way of providing emphasis to a statement. You see it all the time in the Old Testament especially when a, a person who's feeling something or you're describing someone, right? If you want to really emphasize that kind of thing, you double it up like that, right? So she rejoiced with great joy. That's a lot of joy. That's big joy, right? Uh, uh, he sorrowed a great sorrow. He was deeply sorrowful. She was strong with great strength. You get the idea, yes? Okay. So, so when Mark says that the disciples feared a great fear... Terrified is pretty good. 
but you could choose some other, you know, scared spitless or whatever other kind of way you talk about someone being just absolutely terrified, I guess. I, I can't think of a better word. Maybe you can. The point is, they seem to be more afraid now when they were two minutes ago when the wind was blowing and the, wa the water was filling up the boat and they were concerned for their lives. Why? What has frightened them so deeply? Mark's next words direct us toward an answer. The disciples asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. At that moment, the disciples are afraid of Jesus. They feared a great fear because of what they had just seen him do. I have this picture in my mind of the disciples as what they have just witnessed begins to sink in. They are all kind of subconsciously backing away from Jesus, right? And before you know it, all 12 of them are like huddled as far as they can get in the, what's the, not, he's in the stern, so they're in the bow, right? Up against the, I, I don't know, ship, I'm not a sailor. Whatever you call the railing around a ship, right? They are just clustered together, grabbing onto each other, and all, everybody like just, who is this? What just happened? This man just stood up and spoke to the wind and the water, and the wind and the water listened. Why did this scare them so much? I mean, sure, it's an impressive miracle, so maybe you can understand awe or amazement or even shock, but why terror? Why fear? Well, the answer becomes clear when we try to experience this moment from within the worldview of the disciples, who are a bunch of first-century Jewish men. We're four chapters in to Mark's gospel. And in these first four chapters, they have seen Jesus do a lot of amazing stuff, right? He's cast out demons. He's healed all kinds of illnesses, fever, leprosy, paralysis, okay? They've listened to him teach. They've been astounded by his wisdom, by the authority with which he speaks about God's word, God's promises. So they are well aware that Jesus is not just another random dude from Nazareth, yes? Okay? He has done things that they've never done, uh, seen before. He's acted and spoken with authority unlike anything they've ever experienced. The 12 did not leave behind their former lives, their jobs, their families, everything they knew, and join Jesus in wandering around the countryside while he taught and did these incredible things for nothing, right? Crowds are not coming out of every town to see Jesus just because... I don't know, he tells a few good jokes or something like that, right? Jesus is inspiring people. Jesus is going around talking about the kingdom of God. He is stirring up all kinds of hope and anticipation for God to act at long last to deliver God's faithful people, to restore the shalom of God's reign, to bring abundance and blessing and peace. And everything Jesus is saying and doing is making people think maybe Maybe this guy might be it, right? The real deal. He might be the one. He might be the one that's empowered by God to heal what was broken, defeat the wicked, usher in the age to come. This might be the Messiah. But at the same time, the disciples, like 
All those other faithful Jewish people in the first century understood that this coming Messiah, as powerful as he might be through being equipped by God for the job he's got to do, would be human. That's just common sense. What else is he going to be? Anointed by the Spirit of God, yes. Mighty, yes. Wise, yes. Human, what else? And that's where we come back to a boat floating in the middle of the Sea of Galilee with a dozen or so terrified Jewish men clustered together as they try to make sense of what had just happened. This man, Jesus, had just told the wind and the waves what to do, and the wind and the waves did it. Let me try a question on for size. According to everything we know about Jewish belief and everything we read in the Jewish scriptures, who do you think is the only one who has the authority or power to order the natural world around? Guesses? It's God. Yes. It is the one who created all of those things. God alone has the authority and the power to order the cosmos. And maybe we start to see the point Mark's trying to help us to see here. The disciples had been, along with the crowds, amazed and impressed and sometimes challenged by what Jesus had been saying and doing. But as unprecedented and unexpected as some of Jesus' words and deeds had been, they still, in theory, could fit within the framework of a great, and perhaps many of them want to say the greatest ever, prophet or teacher, right? You can still measure up. You can still make that addition work. Surely, this is the kind of wisdom and power the Messiah is going to need to do what God's got for the Messiah to do, right? And then on this night, they watch Jesus do something that blows every category that they had put Jesus into completely out of the water. No pun intended, right? Teacher, prophet, messiah, king, none of it fits standing up in a boat and telling creation what to do. When Jesus stills the storm, he does what only God can do. And so put yourself in those sandals. The disciples thought they were in the boat with a mighty prophet, a wise teacher, a powerful healer, maybe even the Messiah. And now they're confronted by the realization that they are in the boat with who? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. How do you wrap your mind around being in a boat with a man who does that? And so this story ends with this question, the disciples' question ringing in our ears. Who is this? The question that resonates throughout Mark's entire gospel. And this, my friends, is the question I encourage each of us to consider for ourselves. 
Who is Jesus? How do you answer that? For me, when it comes to reflecting on that question, reflecting on Jesus' identity, I think the challenge for many of us is actually quite a bit different than the challenge for the disciples. Because the disciples have their minds blown, right? Uh, they, the, the categories that they had fit Jesus into were completely insufficient. They are being forced to rethink what they think is possible. But for a lot of us, and I'm not going to speak for anybody, I don't know a lot of your stories in this room, okay? So, but speaking for myself, if you, like me, have been a Christian for a while, right? If you, like me, have heard this story, I don't know how many dozen times in my life, right? Our challenge is not having the categories for Jesus blown open. Our category, our, our challenge, rather, is becoming familiar with Jesus, when you've heard these stories many times, when you've listened to the parables over and over, when you know that the cross leads to an empty tomb, that kind of familiarity can lead to disengagement. And even, I think, at times, and possibly worse, apathy. Which is honestly quite incredible if you think about it, right? Something as revolutionary as someone who is dead being raised to life, as reality-altering as God becoming human, loses its power to surprise us? But it happens. Oh yeah, fully human, fully God, right? Yep, no problem, check, got that. And so a story like this one can be helpful to break that mentality, to remind us that there was a first time people were ever confronted by this. And when that happened, it rocked their world. It shook them, them to their core. Things were never the same. So when we hear this story asking us, who is Jesus? When we reflect on how we would answer that question in words, or perhaps how we answer that question in actions, when we ask, what would it look like to live out my belief about who Jesus is, perhaps we could reflect on how that answer changes when we are confronted anew by the Jesus who stands up in a boat and says, quiet, be still. Sisters and brothers, in Jesus we encounter the Word made flesh, and I know we're not in the Christmas season anymore, but one of my favorite Christmas songs puts it, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, Hail the incarnate deity, Pleased as man with us to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. My prayer, my hope, is that we can know and experience this incredible truth anew today and each day. Amen.